there, and welcome to the third episode of the Games That Made Me podcast, a personal reflection on a life spent gaming. I'm your host, Brendan Kelly. Thank you for deciding to tune in and give this new podcast a try. I appreciate the company as I embark on a personal journey through my own gaming history, from my childhood in the fabulous 80s all the way up to the present day. In this podcast, I'll share the video games that have had the biggest impact on my life, and explore the reasons behind why they were so influential. In last week's episode, I talked about my own personal experience with the JRPG, Ni no Kuni, and the Wrath of the White Witch, specifically that it was the sole reason that I bought a PlayStation 3, and it being the RPG whose powerful coming-of-age story piqued my interest all the way through. In this episode, I will be focusing on the various gameplay elements at work in this title. So first up in this particular title is exploration. That's the first gameplay element of Nino Kuni that we're going to be looking at today. There's just so much exploration to do, and I believe that every good RPG involves a lot of exploration, whether it be on a world map delving deep into dungeons, visiting towns in between different places and stocking up on items. All of those things, in my opinion, make for an excellent RPG, and you will find all of those in Nino Kuni. There are treasure chests full of useful items to find throughout the world map, every single dungeon you encounter, and every single town that your character enters. Interesting design choice for me personally was the world map treasure chests, which for about, I would say, the first third of the game or so, are hidden from Oliver's sight until much later in the game when the main character Oliver will learn a spell that will allow him to see the treasure chest locations on the world map for a limited time. Of course, the first time I played through this title, I had no idea that that was going to happen because I was pretty early on in the story, and I bought the strategy guide, which by the way, I can't recommend enough. It's hardcover, it's beautiful, it's a collector's item in and of itself. And I was using the strategy guide to get through the story, but more so to make sure that as I explored each area that I was going to be able to find all the useful items and chests that I needed. And the guide does a great job at covering the game, and it does show the location of all the hidden chests. That was useful, but at the time, like I said, it was the first time I had played through this title, and I couldn't understand for the life of me why the developers and the game's designers had chosen to make just the world map chess invisible. Of course, later on, when Oliver learns the spell that reveals them on the map, it made sense, but I have to say at the time, my first playthrough, I was mystified because the treasure chests that you find in all the dungeons in this title and in the towns are not hidden. Some you have to look for, but there's no special spell that you would need to reveal them. And there's also a wide variety of different types of treasure chests. Treasure chests in this particular title come in four different colors. These are the ones in the dungeons and all the towns. You have red, 
treasure chests, which Oliver is easily able to open from the very beginning of the game. You have blue treasure chests, which can only be opened later on when Oliver learns a specific spell. Purple treasure chests, Oliver also needs to know a spell to open those, but then he also needs to have updated his wand. And then green treasure chests, which you need one of your party members who you require later on in the game to open those up for you. There's a lot of backtracking in this game because in order to be able to collect and open all of the treasure chests and get all the various goods from inside of them, you're going to have to wait till later parts of the story in order for those to open up for you. Now, the various islands throughout Nino Kuni, I counted there are a whopping 21 different islands to see on the world map, are thematically grouped around a season of the year. You have the Summerlands, where the game first starts off, Autumnia, the Winter Isles, and the Spring Isles. And outside of that, each island that you visit features the same time of day no matter when you visit. For example, the Winter Isles, whenever you visit any of those, they're perpetually blanketed in nighttime. The Spring Isles are always visited during the daytime. So you don't really have a true day or night cycle in this game as you do in other titles. It just depends on which continent or which island you're going to and which thematic season is for that particular place that you're visiting. Now, each town in the game also has its own theme. These themes are excellent. They translate into very distinctive architectural styles, so these towns that you visit feel very different from one another, and unique inhabitants. So even the inhabitants of these cities are not all the same race. One of my favorite towns in this game, because it's just so different than I think what a lot of other RPGs include, is the city of Hamlin is this amazing steampunk-themed city where when you first visit it, everybody is forced to wear these ugly pig masks, and I don't want to get into any of the details because that would spoil some of the story for you. And then you also have a, a typical desert oasis town of Al Mamun. That one was interesting to me because there are fountains in that particular town. Keep in mind, this is in a desert of all places. The fountains are spewing out milk, which I found to be an odd choice for a typical desert city. And then you also will visit a town that is entirely populated by fairies. So you just have a very wide variety of different themes in these towns, which make each one of them very memorable. Now, typically, in many, but not all, JRPGs, as you embark on your adventure, you're going to encounter various biomes. You know, you have your desert, your forest, your grasslands. Those are the more typical biomes that you would encounter on this journey. With that said, though, Nino Kuni also includes some very unique biomes. There is a whole area, a whole island, basically, whose landscape is very reminiscent of post-industrial decay. It's full of craters, there are abandoned mines, and it's almost completely devoid of vegetation. Having spent part of my childhood in western Pennsylvania, I could relate to that specific biome. With all the abandoned coal mines and the remnants of the coal and steel industry in western Pennsylvania, 
it was neat that a video game, a JRPG of all things, tackled that kind of post-industrial decay as a whole landscape theme, which I thought was pretty awesome. Another very equally memorable area for me is one that is isolated from the rest of the civilizations that you encounter because it's very high up in the mountains. It's totally supposed to be Machu Picchu and the Andes Mountains, you know, in South America and the real world. The town's inhabitants are Incas. And I just think that that's amazing because it's giving visibility to a group that doesn't usually get it in media, especially in video games. Now, the second gameplay element that we're going to be looking at is combat. Because if you're an RPG or JRPG fan, you know that combat is what you're going to be doing most of the time that you play these titles. This particular title has a hybrid battle system. There are some elements of your turn-based RPGs, like your Dragon Quest. There are some elements of live-action combat, like you'll see in the Tales of series. And there are also a added feature to these battles where you are catching and taming monsters and then using them in your battles as well. So sort of like a nod to Pokemon. Now, while players can control Oliver and his companions directly in combat, most of the time in most of your battles that you're going to be doing, you're probably going to be leaning on and using your tamed monsters which they refer to as familiars in this title, and they're going to be the ones doing the bulk of your fighting for you. And when you find yourself in battle, you're able to control the movement of your character in real time. But whether or not you're successful in battle in this particular game really comes down to whether or not you are paying attention to what your enemy is doing on the screen in real time. The majority of times that my party wiped and I had to start over again from my last save was because I was wasn't paying attention in boss fights to what moves the bosses were about to throw my way. So that's a big part of this title, especially in the boss fights. You gotta be prepared, got to be actively monitoring what the enemies are doing and preparing your characters for what's coming their way. However, unlike other action-oriented combat, like in the Tales of series, for example, the player is just simply giving orders to their character from a menu. That's why I'm sort of saying that that part of combat is very akin to turn-based RPGs like Dragon Quest. And once you give the character the command, the character is going to perform the selected action, right? Very similar to Dragon Quest. What is also nice for newcomers to this game is that even though the action is pretty much taking part in a live action setting and it's continuously moving, sometimes they will temporarily pause the action during fights. I found this as a newcomer to ARPGs very, very refreshing. It let me catch my breath and really get a grip and a handle on what in the world was going on and what I should be doing. For example, when you switch between your characters, the battle will pause, which is great. When you select your target, the battle will pause. So I'm very glad that the developers included that feature for newbies like me. Most encounters inside dungeons and on the world map will be relatively brief, especially as you level up and get more powerful. But it's the boss fights and the bounty hunts 
that can be especially lengthy and challenging. I can remember my first time playing through the game. Some of those boss fights of me being a newbie to this whole system and not really having played many RPGs before that, I can remember some of the bigger boss fights taking me 20 to 30 minutes in real time. So it was pretty crazy for me. The third gameplay element that we're going to be looking at is the monster taming and raising element that we mentioned earlier. This is one element of Nino Kuni that I believe truly sets it apart from a lot of the other RPGs that you'll find out there. There are so many monsters to choose from. There are over 300 familiars to collect if you're a completionist like me and you want to complete the game's creature compendium, which is like a glossary or an encyclopedia of all of the creatures that you come into contact with through battle. Leveling up. You can level up your familiars, and they level up separately from the main characters like Oliver, as long as you keep them as members of your active party, even if they don't actually participate in a fight. They just have to be in your active party to get the experience. Evolution. You can also evolve your familiars when they reach a certain level. And each species of familiar has four members, some of which you can only attain by evolving your familiars. You won't actually find them in the wild available to catch. Customization. Each familiar can have up to a total of 50 of their stats customized by the player. And you do that simply by feeding them treats that you can purchase from the shops in-game, or you can alchemize from the ingredients that you find. The fourth gameplay element that we're going to be looking at are the side quests and the bounty hunts in Nino Kuni. There are a total of 138 of these guys in this title, so it's a lot to do. But the best part about it is that these side quests, which the game calls tasks, are unlocked as the player makes progress in the game story. So you're not going to be, at the beginning of the title, faced with 138 side quests and bounty hunts to do in your journal. They are slowly and gradually unlocked the further along in the game story that you are. So I thought that that was a nice pace. Most tasks are very well-written affairs. However, most of these tasks can be considered your standard fetch quests. For example bringing the quest giver a certain item or number of items is a favorite of this title, but let's be honest, it's also a favorite of most RPGs. Now, the bounty huts require the player to kill a more powerful enemy than what you're used to dealing with, either in a dungeon or on the world map. And most of these fights are quite challenging and can be compared to many boss fights. The more tasks and bounty hunts that you complete, the more stamps that you earn. And the more stamps that you earn can be traded for various rewards that help your party. The fifth gameplay element that we're going to be looking at is alchemy. Alchemy is unlocked at a certain point in the game. I'm not going to give it away because I don't want any spoilers here. But once you unlock alchemy, you can easily access the alchemy menu. Alchemy ingredients can be obtained in several ways in this game. Some of them you can buy in the shops. Some enemies drop. Some you can steal from enemies during battle. Some you'll get by opening treasure chests. And you can even find others by picking them up on the world map 
at various sparkling spawn points. The player can either attempt to randomly combine ingredients together in alchemy, or you can simply follow the recipe. However, recipes can only be obtained in this game through talking to random NPCs, or as a reward for completing certain quests. My first time playing through this game, I didn't do a good job of talking to every single random NPC in every single town and location, and as a result... By the post-game, when I still had a lot of alchemy to do, I was really struggling because I was missing a lot of the recipes. My advice for first-time players? Speak to every NPC no matter how inconsequential they look or their location would suggest to make sure that you get these recipes so you can alchemize as you play through the game. However, with that being said, some of the ingredients that are needed for the best alchemy recipes are particularly rare and very hard to come by. Only certain enemies might drop them, or only certain enemies could have them stolen by the player, and even then, the chances of success for either one are a As a result, on all of my playthroughs of this title, the vast majority of alchemy, I do post-game. And with that said, it can extend the playtime of this game substantially. In fact, on all of my playthroughs, the last thing that I do is completing the 120 alchemy recipes in-game. And that does it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to my personal reflections on one of my all-time favorite games, Nino Kuni. I hope you will join me next week, when I will focus on the reasons why Nino Kuni is considered to be one of my favorite games of all time, and the reasons why I keep coming back to this game. In the meantime, please feel free to stop by my website at www.thegamesthatmademe.com. You can also start up a conversation with me, Send me a message at thegamesthatmademe at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts about Nino Kuni and your own personal experiences with this game. Until next time, I hope you lose yourself in an amazing video game or two. Take care.